You are listening to the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki, two high school head coaches looking to help others spread their passion for the game of basketball. Tune in for episodes about anything basketball related, on the court, off the court, and anything in between. We at the After the Timeout podcast would like to take a full timeout to talk about V-Reps basketball. Coaches, do you get frustrated by how some players just cannot seem to learn your offensive system? Are you spending countless hours teaching your offensive system to your team just for them to forget by the next practice? You should check out V-Reps. V-Reps was founded by basketball players and coaches to create tools that make learning plays easily a reality. V-Reps allows coaches to turn their 2D playbook into a 3D interactive video game that players can watch on any mobile device on their own time. Don't just have players watch film, have them live it and control the players so that they have a better, more efficient learning experience. It's free to try. Go to vreps.us to sign up today. On today's episode, we're joined by Ryan Pannone, head coach of the Erie Bayhawks in the NBA G League. Coach, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Doing well. Uh, thanks for having me. So, Coach, you know, we like to start off with a segment we call the opening tip. Uh, you've obviously coached in Israel, Slovakia, South Korea, Germany, China, just to name a few. Um, we always like to just start our listeners seem to enjoy just uh, stories uh, from one of the stops that stick out as funny or memorable or, or unique. I think your journey is very unique. Um, you know, so we, we were just curious, you know, how were you able to communicate with all those different players in all those different countries? Well, you know, if I have to think of a story that really sticks out, it would be uh, my first international experience going to China. And uh, I started coaching internationally because of my wife. She, her favorite show is House Hunters International. And she asked me to look into coaching abroad. And uh, an American coach by the name of Joe Welton was the head coach of the Foshan Long Lions. And he really gave me a big chance and broke me into international coaching and offered me an assistant job. And um, it wasn't the first time I'd gone overseas. I'd, I'd worked Yijin Lian's camp in China. Uh, Yijin Lian was the former draft pick by the Milwaukee Bucks. And he's a player I worked with individually for a few years. And so I'd, I'd been to China by work in his camp, but this was my first time, you know, living internationally. And as the team booked my flight, I went over a um, few weeks ahead of my wife because the head coach was worried. You know, he said, make sure you come by yourself at first, because I want to make sure that you think that she'll like it before she comes over. And, um, you know, so as I'm talking with the team, I'm, you know, they booked the flight. I, I land at the airport at, you know, uh, 6 a.m. And I was asked, I was like, well, how will I know who's supposed to pick me up? And they said, no, 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 they'll find you. I said, okay, no problem. So we take the flight, land, 
and I walk out, you know, once you get past, uh, you know, security and everything, and there's no one with the sign for me, no one's flagging me down. I start basically doing circles, you know, around the airport. So like, I'm just going like mm, circle right in that area to make sure anyone, maybe the guy's a few minutes late will find me and see me. And, uh, after an hour, no one's there. And so now I'm going outside where people pick you up. And uh, there's a guy in a, a older, not so nice van that's calling me over. And uh, so I go over to him and he doesn't speak in English. And you know, I'm saying, Foshan, you know, Foshan Long Lions. And he said, yes, yes, you know, get in the van. I was like, you're with the team? Yes, yes, yes. You know, like I'm showing him like the document of the team. Yes, yes, yes. So he loads my stuff in the van. I was like, um, all right. And uh, not exactly what I expected, but okay. And, uh, you know, I get into the van and we're leaving the airport. It pulls out his phone and this is 2012. And he starts typing in the calculator for how much money to pay him. I said, no, 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 no. Uh, team pays, you know, and he's getting adamant about it. We're leaving the airport. And I was like, I, I don't have any RMB, which is the currency there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he's trying to call people that speak English. I'm trying to call the team, but I mean, my cell phone doesn't work there. And he, you know, because it's early in the morning, he can't get a hold of one and I can't get anyone. So now he's like, now I'm ignorantly and arrogantly getting upset. And I don't ever get upset. And, you know, he's trying to drop me off on the side of the road. We've left the airport. He's trying to drop me off on the side of the road. <laughs> now I'm yelling at the guy. And, you know, so I get him to turn around and take me back to the airport and I have a $20 bill in my, in my wallet. And I start thinking, you know, and this is the, the ignorance and arrogance that we oftentimes have as Americans of, I was getting so mad at him for not speaking English when I'm in China mm-hmm. and I was getting so mad and so angry. And here this guy is, he's just trying to feed his family, you know? He's just trying to provide for his family. Maybe he's got kids, you know, trying to make a living. And uh, I gave him, you know, uh, 20, 20 US dollars, which he was thankful for. And I get back there and then the, the team translator picks me up. He's like, oh, where were you? I, said, I didn't even know. I just gave him a big hug. I was like, I thought I was over. I thought I was getting kidnapped. You know, so that was kind of my, my first uh uh taste of really living internationally which was really good for me um because there specifically no nobody really speaks english like and not nobody but very few people speak english and i had to figure out how to survive um without people speaking english without really having google translate um and everything else and so it was a great experience for my wife and i and then the appreciation uh, that we oftentimes miss out of as Americans, because there's a lot of things that we take for granted that, you know, you don't really have the opportunity to do and, and live that life in China. And so it was, it was really good. And it was also really good because we oftentimes, as a country, look down on China. They have some great things in their culture that if we adopted would make America better. That's a great story. That's kind it of, it's, it's got to be a, a, it's got to be a nerve wracking experience, not knowing kind of what's going on there yeah i mean after uh, you know uh, 
24 hour travel day, 6 a.m. and you're getting kidnapped. Yeah. What an ideal. <laughs> so, all right. So we're, you're getting ready to go coach the summer league uh, again here with the Falcons. Um, you know, summer leagues real quick, right? You got the draft and then summer league comes. Um, so when uh, we haven't had this perspective before, what is, what is summer league like, you know, as a coach, what, what are you trying to get accomplished? What are you, you know, trying to do for the players as well as, as the team? Oh, you know, I'd say my, my role is a little bit different um, because in my experiences, it's been as an assistant coach at summer league, but more of behind the bench. Um, you know, so my first year at summer league uh, with the Pelicans, Fred Vinson, coach Fred Vinson was the head coach and I was new and I was just kind of behind the bench and, you know, he was excellent. He gave everyone, um, you know, scouting and a voice to, to say anything. And so, you know, one, you know, on the team side, you know, I tried to, to give thoughts and advice, uh, the, just little things that I saw to coach Fred Vinson, uh, which he was amazing and super receptive to and tried to give my thoughts to the players. You know, I think for the players specifically, that's more so my own personal role is for most of these guys, it's as close as they will ever get to the NBA. And, you know, my, my job isn't to coach the first round draft pick. You know, that's going to be the NBA staff, the NBA coaches. And, you know, I try to tailor myself more to the guys that are, you know, this may be as close as they'll ever get to the NBA. And so I want that experience for them to be special. Uh, because on a lot of summer league teams, unfortunately for those guys, it's not. And I think we sometimes lose sight that every player, just like every coach has a dream to try to make it to the NBA. And if that's as close as someone is going to get in their opportunity to be uh, coached in an NBA system, put on an NBA uniform, be coached by NBA coaches, I think we have to make it the best experience possible for them. So for me, I try to really coach those guys up as much as I can get with them before practice, after practice, give them little thoughts, things that I see, uh, as I see, uh, during the game. And then, you know, for the standard roster contract guys, you know, uh, I mean, that's, that's not my role or my job to, to really coach them or to, you know, to over communicate, you know, that's for the NBA assistance. So uh, an interesting follow-up coach is obviously New Orleans just hired a, a new head coach themselves uh, in Willie Green. You know, when do, when do those kind of decisions get made for, you know, who's coaching the summer league, who's taking part in this uh, piece of it, et cetera? It, it, I mean, it's something that runs uh, organization to organization. You know, it's like naturally on, on who they're going to select. And, and, and this is, is, I'm not exactly sure who's coaching summer league. I believe Teresa Weatherspoon is, um, but I, I don't, I'm not exactly sure. You know, so that's above my pay grade. Um, I, so let, let's kind of get into, you know, you've, you've done a lot of player development. You kind of had just kind of talked about that a little bit within the summer league. So for you, you know, what are, what are the first steps in working in, in player development at that high of a level, at that professional level? Um, you know, do you ask the players specifically what they want to develop? Do you watch film on that specific player and kind of make a plan in concert with them? 
kind of take us through how you do player development at the professional level. Uh, I mean, once again, that's going to become unique to to every coach and every organization. My own personal philosophy is I'm going to watch uh, a tremendous amount of film and track their numbers because I want to know their game um, at an extremely high level. Because if I'm going to work with you, you know, it's important that you know I've done my research, right? I'm not just showing up to the gym. It's like, all right, you know, let's work on this. You know, I, I'm want to be extremely prepared knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are by the numbers knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are by the eye test things that you have to improve having a clear-cut plan based off the numbers based off video and then based off thinking it out and then I will take my thoughts in that plan and then I take it to the front office and then I ask for their thoughts and their input on it you know is there something specifically they want to see that player developed that I'm missing, you know, so there's synergy between myself and the front office. And then I'll communicate with the player. Hey, these are the numbers. This is the video backing up the numbers. This is what we see. What are your thoughts? What do you think, you know, are your strengths and weaknesses? What do you want to work on? What do you want to add to your game? And then uh, throughout the, you know, it's, it's like everything, right? You, you want to give players ownership in their development. Because if they're not buying into what you're doing, the chance of really helping them reach their potential through their development uh, becomes more or less limited. And for me, right, I want them to take ownership in what they're doing. I want them to know, you know, these are the numbers. This is the video backing it up. This is what I've seen. This is what I see. What do you see? What does the front office see? And then create that player development plan uh, through the vertical alignment of the player, the coaching staff, and the front office. So then let's take that player development aspect and kind of compare and contrast uh, the NBA and, and overseas, right? Because that's, that's talked about quite a bit. You know, it's even talked about now, right, when we have the Olympics on and, you know, uh, you know you're seeing different players from different countries that are, that are really good ball players. So, um, you know, what are, what are some of the differences between overseas and NBA and player development? And maybe what are some things that maybe we can take in from overseas and bring back here to help develop our players even more efficiently? Well, you know, first I would say that on the player development front, there's a massive difference between the NBA and Europe in terms of size of staff and, and in terms of pressure. And so for me, there's a misconception on the development at the professional level of players compared to the overall development of players. So I think from a youth level, uh, the development is far past uh, what we're doing in America for what they do in Europe. And once again, there's, there's multiple uh, reasons for that, you know, not, not just because they're necessarily um, better teachers, but, but the way they're doing it, how they're doing it, what the structure system is in Europe, uh, growing up from, from youth to becoming pro and what it is in America. At the pro level, on most pro teams, you're going to have a head coach and an assistant coach. Some teams have two assistants. Very few teams have three assistants. And so, you know, on the NBA side, you can have a coaching staff from intern to video guy, player development guy, assistant coach, head coach, that can be close to 20 people. You know, so there's a massive size difference in what you're 
uh, staff is in the NBA compared to Europe. And, you know, then the pressure to win is totally different. And so, you know, I think for a lot of clubs in Europe, okay, there's naturally some player development going on, but I wouldn't say that the, that the structure of the player development, the organization of the individual player development plan and the input on the player development is as good at the pro level in Europe as it is in the NBA. And part of that is size of staff. The other part of that is pressure to win. Um, you know, in Europe, the, you can sign a three-year deal as a head coach and get fired in your first year for losing too many games in the preseason. And typically in the NBA, you're going to get two, two and a half years. In college, you're going to get four or five. You know, so the, the pressure to win in Europe is much higher. And most coaches uh, are signing one-year deals. You know, in the NBA, they're typically signing minimum three-year deals. You know, so in some, obviously, four or five. You know, so I think there's a misconception on the actual professional development of players um, in Europe and the NBA based off that. But I would say at the youth level, uh, it's, it's much more organized, much uh, more construction in what they're doing and how they're teaching it, and which gives the players as they become pros a huge advantage over our players as they become pros. Yeah, so that was kind of my follow-up as you were talking. Um maybe some of those specific differences at the youth level, some of the things that they do, um, you know, cause as, as high school coaches, as you know, AAU coaches and all that, we're always looking for ways to develop the, the youth, the youth game and have them, you know, ready for our, for our program. So what are, what are maybe some of those specific things that they do that we could use? You know, one, I, I think it starts in the, the coaching construction on how you become a coach. And so in order to become a coach in Europe, you have to get a coach's license. It's mandatory. And there are different phases of the coaching licenses that allow you to coach different levels. So you have to continue to pass uh, the coaching license to move up from under 12 to under 16 to under 18 to become pros. No, so one, I think the construction of that is, is very important to note. Two, a lot of times in a lot of clubs, the actual coaching job uh, at the youth level, especially as the director of the youth academy, are at least part-time, and a lot of times they're more full-time. You know, so these coaches, even though they're coaching at a youth level, it's a more or less part-time professional coaching job or a full-time professional coaching job. To where for us in America, a lot of the youth coaches are essentially volunteering their time, right? They're not getting paid to be a youth coach. They're getting paid to be a teacher and they get a small stipend to be some form of youth coach or they're volunteering their time. And then the, the curriculum behind that, you know, obviously the USA licensing is, is attempting to change that. But it's, it's still the, the level of the licensing and what goes into the curriculum is very different. And so it's, you know, it's mandatory in Europe, you know, to keep your license update by attending multiple coaching clinics and multiple coaching consortiums and to where here in America, it's not. You know, so first, I want to say that's a big part of it, you know, for, for parents and uh, adults that are basically volunteering their time, you know, what goes into it is totally different. And then the style of play, you know, the American game, if you watch even now, 
you can get to the higher levels of what player development is done in America. 95% of what's happening in these skill workouts are based off the player having the ball, right? When 95% of the time they don't have the ball. And so I think there's a few things that they're doing at the youth level compared to what we are doing. They're teaching guys to know how to play the game, right? They're teaching guys to really read the defense. They're teaching players to make decisions. You know, decision-making based training is really important. That's why, you know, they really have a high level of understanding how to play out of a pick and roll. If you take most rookies that come from college to Europe, they can't understand in Europe why the rookie point guards coming from America have no idea how to play out of a pick and roll. Because everything in America, you know, out of a pick and roll, they play to score, right? They don't play to create. And there's a massive difference in the philosophy of what that they're teaching. And so being able to have the skill that goes into, okay, the shooting, everything in the American game is, it's changing now with the shooting, obviously a big part of that revolution is Steph Curry, but is based on having the ball in their hands, breaking their man down, taking five or six dribbles to get past their guy, get on the rim and finish. You know, and to where in Europe, you know, everything as a philosophy is based on player movement and ball movement. And they want players to be very efficient without over dribbling. And they want guys to learn the fundamentals of the footwork that's going into it, how to set up out of a pick and roll, what the reads are out of a pick and roll against different coverages and how they're able to, you know, they're teaching multiple players, right, to play and pass off one hand, which, you know, it's not as common in America. And you know, so I think that's a, a big part of the development, the, when it comes down to it, teaching the skill, right, uh, drilling the skill, reading the skill, using the skill, playing the skill. And so decision-making for an IQ for those guys is at a much higher level. You know, coach, I, I want to hit on one more thing that you said was interesting, just, you know, as Todd and I are both, you know, teachers and educators ourselves, you know, you had talked about the, um, the license to coach in Europe and almost, almost working your way up. And then as you do coach almost having, I'm going to use education terms, but almost having professional development opportunities to maintain your license, just as a, a teacher would in America you gain your license, you have to do every three to five years, so many professional development hours to keep your license active. Do you feel that that coaching development would be something that could be used in America to almost develop coaches from a young age to move up just as just as we develop players from that young age? I'm just curious of your your thoughts on that? Yeah, aspect. absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, this is my own personal belief. I think if you take as a whole, the best tactical coaches as a whole are in Europe, not in America. And there's a few reasoning behind it. It's not that, that the European coaches are smarter, right, uh, than American coaches. The way they're brought up is different. So in Europe, the way that you're brought up on your coaching development is okay. A lot of them are going to college for their to become a basketball coach, but either way, they go to get their coaching license. And that coaching license allows you to become a head coach at the, let's say, under 12 level, you know, 
Okay, you go back, you're taking coaching developments, you're learning how to coach youth under 12, you're learning how to build the basic fundamentals for the under 12 player. You go back, improve your coaching license, now you can be a head coach of the under 16 level. Same process, now you go back to be a head coach of the under 21 level. Same process, now you become a professional assistant coach. And while you're a professional assistant coach in a lot of clubs, you're still a youth coach. Right. And then, okay, obviously you work your way to become a professional head coach. Well, by the time you become a professional head coach, you've coached a thousand games. Now, yes, you can say it's at the youth level, right? But you still have to manage a timeout. You still have to manage a team. You still have to implement your offense and defensive system. You still have to run your practice. You still have to deal with players that are going to complain about, I'm not getting enough shots. I'm not playing enough minutes. I need more touches, right? And so obviously mm -hmm. that the talent level is different and some of the problems become different, but a lot of the problems that you deal with at the pro level are the same things that are dealt with at a, at a younger level. And so when those coaches become a professional coach for the first time, it's not their first time becoming a head coach. They've done it and they've been able to make mistakes and fail in environments that aren't pressure filled right they're they lose a game at under 12 it's not a big deal you know but they have to learn how they want to draw up their plays how they want to communicate how they want to hold their board how they want to you know how they want to organize their timeouts for us in america if you take a look at the collegiate level and the nba level your typical path to becoming a head coach is going to be one of the following being a manager in college go from being a manager in college to a ga from a ga to support staff whether it's video guy ops guy uh director of recruiting whatever you go from there to be an assistant coach you go from being an assistant coach to a head coach by the time you become a head coach you're let's say 35 to 50 years old and you've never actually coached if you go the nba route typically okay you're going to be manager manager to ga ga to intern in the nba intern in the nba to video video to player development player development to assistant assistant to head coach and by the time you become a head coach you've never actually really coached outside of maybe you got opportunity at summer league and now the way that the g league is being used is a little bit different they're trying to use the g league uh to develop coaches as well which is not as much of a pressure-filled environment but but for the most part what the standard has been by the time you become a head coach in college or a head coach in the NBA, it's your first time being a head coach and you're in a pressure filled environment, you know, so every mistake that you make is scrutinized, you know, it's under the microscope, you haven't been able to refine those skills. And obviously it's beginning to change now with a lot more former players that are becoming involved right so so even for the former players, it's, it's, they're able to bypass some of those steps of being a manager, GA, intern. Some still have to go through that, but maybe they go from being a former player directly to an assistant coach, then assistant coach to head coach or former player to directly to a head coach. And same thing for the first time, you could say what you want. Being a player and being a coach is totally different. You're in a pressure-filled environment. and Every mistake you make is under the bright lights. And in Europe, okay, the pressure is much higher at the professional level than what it is at the college level in the NBA, but you've been able to make a thousand mistakes where no one noticed and which have helped prepared you for those situations. And I think that coaching development also trickles down to the development of the players as well.
you know, and what they're doing at the youth age. So kind of in going with that, you know, let's, you've obviously coached at a variety of levels yourself, um, high school, college, overseas, professional in America, you know, what are, what are things that you specifically have taken with you that you've kind of used with all of those levels? What are the kind of things that have carried over for you in your career? Well, I, I was very fortunate at, at a young age, at 20 years old, um, there was a coach by the name of David Thorpe. David Thorpe was one of the first um, coaches, training guys for the NBA pre-draft, was maybe the first guy working with NBA players full-time throughout the season. And I, I was very fortunate that he gave me an opportunity to be around him at 20 years old. And my first summer working with him, he's to this day, the best player development guy I've seen. And I try to get out and see everyone that there is that's considered the best or watch them, their clinics uh, online. And so the, the foundation that I learned from him in player development was also my first year being a head coach at high school. So from 20 to 25, I was a high school head coach. And a big part of that player development foundation and even coaching foundation came from him. And still to this day, I, I utilize it, you know, and, and one that's number one is we're in the inspiration business, right? It's our job to inspire players, to inspire them and to breathe belief into them that, that they can become a better player than what they really thought, become a better person, a better student, and really understanding the holistic approach of what player development is and people oftentimes confuse skill development and player development because they're two totally different things but oftentimes we treat them as if they are the same and skill development is where you're going to develop your passing ability your player development your shooting etc and player development is a little bit more of a holistic approach right it's being able to understand the value of scouting reports, right? It's the understanding your team concepts, your offensive, your defensive concepts, your sets, your play calls, uh, taking care of your body, what you're eating nutritionally, how you stretch, how you prepare, what your approach is, what your life is like in creating that life balance off the court, you know, is also very important. And then obviously the decision-making that you have uh, on the floor as well. And so for me, you know, a big part of the base, I, I was very fortunate that I have taken that to every place that I've been, you know, has been a big part of, of his philosophy and, you know, being able to really work with the players, develop the players and create that buy-in because what I want players to know on the team side, and this is a big thing for me, the more I invest in the person the harder I can coach the player. And the more that the person knows I am taking value and want him to be successful individually, I want him to improve as a player. I want him to go from being a guy that doesn't get any minutes to earning minutes to a role player, to a starter, or I would say at the professional level, it's you know a little bit more contract-based, right? I want them to go from being a a minimum player, right, to adding value to them. And that's a big part, I think, of what I've taken everywhere is, you know, figuring out how to add value and attempting to add value to each player. And then, you know, taking that construction of player development and creating synergy of that within our team concepts. 
Okay, so let's let's kind of break it down to the high school level. You talked about your opportunity to be a high school coach. Um, what are your it could be top two, top three, whatever, whatever you kind of think are your if, if you're a high school coach right now, what are the essential skills we should be teaching our high school athletes in today's game for today's game? Accountability. Number one, accountability. Guys just are not held accountable. And it's not just at really at the high school level, it's at every level. I mean, you can go from middle school, high school, college, okay, it's a little bit different. You know, accountability is number one. You know, players have got to learn accountability. I think that's missed. You know, oftentimes, you know, even when I was a high school coach, it would drive me nuts, right? Uh, player fails a test on Thursday and is suited up ready to play Friday night in the big game and you know like that was something I tried to change for me as a high school coach I mean we had our non-negotiables we had our rules and didn't matter who you were and if you broke them you didn't play or you had to deal with with the punishment for it and I think that's continuing to change you know so one accountability two coachability you know at at the end of the day players really understanding that they have to be coachable and and part of being coachable is holding them accountable to being coachable. And the coachability, the, the reality of it is this, the 0.05% of players are going to become the Le, LeBron James, right? The, the best players in the world. Everyone else is essentially a role player, you know, and those are the guys and obviously the, what, one percent of players or less end up making the nba you know whatever the statistic is and so now let's let's trickle it down to the college level of you know you have to be coachable you know because there's there's very few players that are good enough to not be coachable and even then at some point in their career they're no longer good enough to not be coachable. The, the teams just aren't going to deal with them, right? When their production outweighs not being coachable, mm, their, their careers end early. And so I think that's a big part of it. Then understanding the value of winning in team play. You know, I think what they, what they do in Europe, everything is about the team. It's about the team winning. You know, the way that they approach everything in practice, the way they approach their team meals, their team dinners. Uh, everything is about the team. It's about what's best for the team. And it's about the team winning. And, you know, then from there, I think decision-making at the end of the day, players that we're getting at, at our level at the G league and the NBA struggle with decision-making and all they know is ball in my hand score, but they don't understand things conceptually. They don't understand the decision-making. They don't understand how to make players better. They don't understand how to make their teammates better. They don't understand how to move without the ball. They don't understand when and how to move without the ball. The understanding of spacing, you know? And so I think teaching guys how to really understand and value those things from the youth level will have, uh, you know, will have a buildup effect to players at our level. So that's, that's kind of a perfect tie into what I want to ask you next. Um, some of these elite high school players are, are starting to skip the college route, right? Uh, they're going G League. They're going overseas. Um, so, you know, we just talked about all those development things. Um, you know, what are some of the maybe the positives and negatives of 
of having those players? And where do you start with their development since they didn't even get that step of the college experience, right? Which is kind of that stepping stone to, to pro ball. I, it's a huge jump to go from high school to pro ball, wherever you play. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a huge jump and, you know, one, I, I think it, it's, it's great for the players to have the option. You know, at the end of the day, they should have that choice for what they feel is best for their family, for their career, for themselves. And so I'm very, very pro players having that, having that option. I think there are some great values of players attending college and being coached, um, you know, at the highest level by, by great, great college coaches that do a really good job with uh, helping these young men, not just develop as players, but develop as people, um, which is incredibly important. And then I think for us and, and how we try to determine at our level is still continuing to value character you know, right. I mean, at the end of the day, if you are looking to sign guys, draft guys, develop guys at high character, right. Then the accountability portion, the coachability portion are a little bit easier, right. Because of their moral compass. And, uh, you know, instead of taking guys that, that don't value that stuff, you know, so I think that's a big part. I think going to college, right. There's, there's a big pro to it to where for the most part, you know, everything that they're getting at the college level, you know, for what they're going to experience compared to the G league and to um, Europe is a little bit better. Uh, the way that they travel is better. The training table they get is better. You know, we're talking for the elite, the elite guys, the gear that they get is better, you know, playing in front of 17,000 fans is better. You know, and in the G League, you're max playing in front of four or five thousand fans, you know, and a lot of teams are playing in front of a thousand. So I think that the overall experience of, of what they're getting on that aspect may be a little bit better. In a lot of cases is better. And, and honestly, it's a big adjustment for guys that go from college to the G League to Europe, you know, because they're you don't have the same resources. Now, for players that are playing for the Ignite team, right, it's also a great opportunity. They had the opportunity this year to be coached by Brian Shaw, you know, who's a former NBA player, former NBA head coach, and is able to have that direct development for what is going to happen in the NBA. And the college game as a whole is very different from the NBA game, from the rules to the spacing to the terminology to the style of play is extremely different. So I do think that there's an advantage for players that are joining the Ignite program uh, and are getting that opportunity to, uh, one, they're, they're being well compensated, which our players should be. And obviously it's a great thing, I think, for what's happening in college. Uh, but then two, they're getting to learn from former NBA coaches, former NBA players on what to really expect at the NBA level from the terminology, the development, the style of play, everything that goes into being an NBA player. And obviously these guys have got to continue to develop when they go from, you know, from high school directly to the NBA and, and the G league uh, path is spending a lot of input into it. It's helping them be more prepared for what life is going to be like off the floor and really trying to, you know, they're putting a tremendous amount of resources. And I think they've done a great job of trying to develop the person and what life is like 
off the court because that's obviously it's a big shock, you know, for players that make that direct jump from college to the NBA, you know, for what the life is like. And they're doing everything they can, the, the G League and putting the resources and helping prepare those high-level elite players for that. All right, so now I want to move into some, uh, some X's and O's, um, some, some concepts. Uh, you know, obviously at the pro level, it's dictated by personnel, matchups, things like that. But, but just kind of in general, what are some of your, your, your favorite actions or, or ways to, you know, create an advantage um, like you had talked about, you know, especially at the, at the, you know, over, overseas, create that advantage um, and then start having those decision-making uh, options. You know, what are you, what are some of your favorite ways to do that? Yeah. I mean, there's, once again, it's going to come to your personnel and, and where you're coaching at because ways that you can create the advantage in college and in Europe are different than what you can do in the NBA because, you know, at the, Number one, the easiest advantage to create is to play fast. And the NBA game, the G League game, is played at a much faster pace than what the college game and the European game is. So I think some of that is is very simple for, for where you're coaching, right? But to create an advantage, and you have to think about offense broken down into, if you want a complex term, right, it would be race, you know, space, plus pace, pace being in the half court, plus timing, plus reading, plus ball movement, plus player movement. If you want to simplify that, you have to think of create the advantage, keep the advantage, use the advantage. And in order to create the advantage, there's a lot of ways to create that advantage, which is one, it can be as simple as just playing fast, playing down in transition, right? Putting the defense at a disadvantage, you know, from a number standpoint. But you know, for me, obviously playing fast, anything out of pick and rolls, off ball screens, any kind of action that has movement before the final action and movement after the action are things that I like to do. But then in order to really create the advantage and keep the advantage and use the advantage, spacing is is extremely important because you can have, you know, a very talented group of five players with you know, poor spacing, and they're not able to show and maximize or utilize their individual talents. And you can have a group of less talented players that maximize their spacing, right, which allows their individual skills to show. And so if you're trying to create the advantage, you know, in order to create the advantage and keep the advantage, you have to have maximized spacing. You have to have decision-making that goes into that, right? Being able to really read the defense in a very simple rule of the moment two are on the ball, you've done the job. And, and it's very simple. And it's something I think players really struggle with in America, right? Anything that gets two players on the ball, it's over, right? Two quick passes beats any defense with two are on the ball. And we tend to hold the ball once we get two on it. And we try to score when there's two on the ball. And so being able to get guys to conceptually understand, right, the moment two guys are on the ball, you have to get off it. So if you're driving to attack and you're trying to create that advantage and it's one-on-one -on -one and that guy's on your hip, now, you know, you can play to score, right, to where the moment you draw that secondary defender, you got to get off it. And I think pick and rolls, off-ball screens, and like I said, not just – basic pick and rolls and off ball screens, but anything where there's movement that shifts or breaks slash distorts the shell defense before you get to the final action is now going to put them in a miscommunication on their rotations. And then that's going to allow you with proper spacing to be able to create the advantage 
keep the advantage and then use the advantage. So I think staying with that, you know, we, one other thing that we wanted to talk to you about and, and ask you about is the switching of the man to man, you know, whether it was in the NBA, when we saw that the sun switched a lot or the buck switched a lot. And obviously there's different elements of drop coverage and, and different things. We just recently had a, a guest on and uh, one of our video chats who talks a lot about switching as far as the, the high school level. So you know, when you see a switching man-to-man defense, you know, what are things at the pro level you guys kind of do to, to counter it? Um, and then, you know, not as much so that it's not as much just staying with the isolations. And, you know, you had just talked a lot about ball movement and, and um, spacing. So, you know, what are things you do to counter switching at the pro level? Uh, one, it, it starts with the, the skill work component of it. And so we try to build up how we want to attack switching from a skill work component to a conceptual component, then to what we run tactically with our sets. And so from a skill work component, right, first option is to reject the screen. You know, at the end of the day, when teams are looking to switch defense, very few times is the ball handlers uh, player trying to force you into the screen. They're trying to be prepared to try to switch and switch under. So reject the screen for the guards, slip the screen for the bigs, okay? Second one would be when there is contact on the screen, screen below, stay below. Meaning if you're going to set a screen and your left shoulder, right, is towards the ball handler, then you want to try to create that contact with your left shoulder, right? We continuously to teach uh, screening out of a pick and roll to try to split their body, screen their lower third. But if you know that they're switching, you actually want to try to create that contact with your top shoulder and screen them with your top shoulder so they never have the opportunity to roll underneath you. And then the next component of that would be for the guard, right, is now it's, is to reject the switch, right? So now as the guard comes off the screen and the big does switch on you, right away you just reject the switch because they're not expecting that. Then as you get past those components of the skill work, now you want to utilize for the bigs to seal and try to take advantage of that big ceiling. Uh, and then also from the big ceiling, right, try to create your high low advantages. Uh, and this is kind of step by step the way that we build it. Okay, from, from there now is the biggest ceiling. You can look to get to your boomerang attack with your guard, which is kind of where you pass the ball and try to get that player to load to help and then pass it right back so he can attack and get downhill. Most teams and players run the boomerang wrong, you know, instead they'll catch when they pass and, and receive it back, they catch and hold it. And which the advantage is for you to just catch and stampede action or attack the catch, whatever your terminology is. And a lot of guys actually, when they pass, they try to back up some, which same that's, it's a little bit more advantage to the big. Um, and then now as you're getting to your, your conceptual component to how you want to attack switching, the, you have to think of attacking switching through the advantage, right? And oftentimes, especially in America, we think of the advantage of being the guard or the big that's involved in the switch. Either the guard has a mismatch or the big has a mismatch. But oftentimes, the advantage is one of the three players off the ball. 
And because what they're going to do, one, they're going to ball watch because that's just the reality of what players do in any man-to-man defense. They ball watch. Two, they're worried about the player getting attacked in the post, so they try to shrink or maybe they're in position to try to scram and triple switch out. Or they're worried about the big being attacked on the perimeter, so they try to shrink the floor and, and take away the penetration. So the advantage maybe come from the player that's trying to help in on to take away the post entry pass or to take away the penetration by the guard. And so once that advantage is created and that defense is basically shrunk, now you're playing through a closeout, right? And half court offense nowadays is anything played through a closeout. And we don't think of what the advantage oftentimes is. And so now if we're thinking of the advantage and being in one of the three off ball players, right? Off-ball cuts, right? As the switch is happening, because one of those guys may lose sight. Fill behinds, meaning as the pick and roll is happening, guys are filling behind the basketball. Off-ball screen flares, you know, that are going to look to take advantage of that, once again, as the miscommunication is happening. Putting the big switch defender in help, meaning, let's say that I've come off the pick and roll, the biggest switched on to me, Okay, and I released it to let the action go, that defender, almost like the boomerang effect, may become in help, right? So maybe it's another action that's run as that defender is help. And now I'm putting that big in help, driving that big in help. So not just passing back to force him to help and now pitching and playing off that close out with the big that's coming from a help side position. Um, you know, and these are all tactics that I, that I think can become really helpful. Continuing your flow of the second side, you know, because what ends up happening is switching defense against good coaches. They're going to really try to protect everything on the first side. They're going to try to shrink the floor. But oftentimes, if you design your sets to keep the flow and attack the switch through the second side, those two switching defenders, but then the help side defense are going to relax because they're going to think, okay, he's not trying to attack the switch through the guard or the big that were involved in it. And now the moment they relax, you can attack them through it. Um, I think the what the Charlotte Hornets started doing, which is what they call May Day, is really good, um, which is where they will create the switch. They've got the guard and the big on it. And then they'll, they now have the big defending the ball, and they'll send a secondary player up to either set a screen or slip out of the screen. And so if you think of that from an action, right, whenever we defend slip out screens, it's pretty much 100% of the time, the big is guarding the screener, right? He's not defending the ball. So the communication that is required for the big now defending the ball to switch onto the off ball slips, the off ball slip screen, right, is going to cause a miscommunication. And if you do it with your, your best shooter not involved in the switch, right, you can create a really good bucket. And then, obviously, offensive rebounding, you know, to try to take advantage after all of those options. Now, you can't, you know, at, at the G League level and the NBA level, you can't really utilize all of those concepts at once because it's, it's too much, right, but figuring out what fits you as a coach and what fits your personnel is really important. But for me, if the purpose of attacking switching defense is to create isolation offense or to stop the flow of your offense, I then want to attack the switch 
that involves multiple players, right? I don't want it to just be two players involved in attacking the switch. I want three, four, five, because then everyone is going to feel a part of it. And for me, that's a big part of attacking switching, you know, to where everyone feels that they are a part of the solution for attacking the switch, not just two players that are dominating the ball, taking every shot, becoming isolation basketball. All right, coach. Well, you officially just booked yourself on a video chat with us to talk about this more because that was spectacular information. Yeah, I can kind of show all those concepts through video. That would be awesome. So we wanted to we, we, we wanted to hit on one more topic that you had mentioned and Todd and I are very passionate about. Um, as you were talking, um, I, I kind of thought about it. You know, Todd and I are very big on trying to expand the, the role of, of women in the game of basketball, especially coaching on the men's side and promoting the women's side of the game. Um, and, and you had mentioned that, you know, you were coming up, you were going to be coaching with uh, Coach Weatherspoon. And I know that, um, that you have an assistant, I believe, on your staff. Um, so, you know, how do we continue to promote women coaching in the men's side of the game? Obviously now it's become the norm. Oh yeah. I'm a guy's coaching a women's team, but how do we continue to promote that women coaching in the men's side? Well, I think one, it's important to understand that there is no race, gender, or nationality that has a monopoly on the game. You know, Amen. it's, and, and same from experience, you know, it's former players and non-former players. No one has a monopoly on the game. You're either really good at what you do or you're not. And I mean, there's also an age factor, right? Because now you're seeing a lot of times older experienced coaches, it's like guys too old. And the reality of it is, you know, too old, too young, race, gender, nationality, you're either good or you're not. You're either the best person for the job or you're not. And each part of those components give you a unique perspective on the game. And I think that's a huge advantage, right? One, if, if you're a coach and you're making the hirings for your staff, for me, I want people that see the game different than me, right? I already know how I see the game. I'm very prepared. I have my thoughts. I have my philosophy. What I have is very detailed. I've thought over it very well. I don't need a bunch of people that see the game through the same lens as me. I want people that see the game differently than me. And that can come from being a former player because former, you know, I I played at the high school level right? Former experienced NBA players, they just see the game differently than what somebody who worked their way up through, you know, uh, through a typical coaching path does. And that's really, really valuable. You can have former players on the men's and women's game, but even taking people that have been a part of the women's game, right? There are concepts, you know, I say this, there are a lot of concepts internationally that would make the American game far better and American game. I'm going to speak in general on the men's game because that's what I predominantly know, but there's a lot of concepts internationally that if we adopted at the high school, youth level, college level, NBA level would make the game much better. There are a lot of concepts that happen in the women's game that if we adopted on the men's game 
that would also make the men's game much better, right? Because both of those levels, the international game and the women's game, they have to figure out how to create these advantages without the supreme athleticism of what the men's American game has. And if we can take those same concepts and tactics and, you know, apply them to the athletes we have in the men's game, it's the best of both worlds. And, you know, I was fortunate my, my first year with Teresa Weatherspoon was a two-way coach. Uh, we had Mary Andrade and then Swin Cash is in the front office of uh, the New Orleans Pelicans. And they are all extremely intelligent individuals as people first. They're all extremely intelligent basketball minds and each of their minds works very differently. And I've tried to pick the brain of all of them and including, you know, Swin Cash played, you know, at UConn. She's played for some of the greatest coaches in the world, you know? <laughs> and we often think, the, you know, both ignorantly and arrogantly, oftentimes we think of the best coaches as well. Ah, they're men's coaches, right? And it's not, it's not true. You know, there's great coaches at every level. There's great coaches uh, all over the world. And there's great coaches coaching men's and women's game. And, you know, so I, I think one, we have to have an open mindset for everything of, is this person the best person for the job? Are they the most qualified? Right. And none of those factors go into it for me. I don't care. All I care about is, will you make me a better coach? Will you make our players a better player? Will you improve our chance of winning? And that's most important for me. And then each coaching role has uh, a different role that goes into it. Now are you the best person for this job? And I think when we have the open mindset of inclusion and you know, we get out of our own way and realize that there are great, great coaches all over in many different roles, it will continue to develop the game. And I, I love what the NBA has done. You know, the NBA is really spearheaded. Um, and that comes, you know, from the top down. It was something for us that was really important for David Griffin and Trajan Langdon. And it's a trickle-down effect of, of inclusion of, hey, we're going to hire the best. We're going to hire the best. It doesn't matter, you know, what their background is and swing cash and Teresa Weatherspoon and Mary Andrade are some of the best. That's, that's very well said coach. And I think if we can just apply that to kind of everything we do, I think we'd be, I'll be, I'll be much better off. Um, so I want to go into the last two segments here. Uh, I, I want, well, last one is 30 second timeout. So it's your platform. Talk about kind of anything you want, uh, what you're passionate about, uh, something you're working on, um, you know, organization or charity, uh, any, any kind of story you have, uh, yeah, very, I, very loose 30 seconds. It's all you know, you. I would say one, I'm not really passionate about anything except for, uh, my family basketball and food. I have no, I have no hobbies. I don't, I don't do anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, and, and as I've gotten older and, and become married and had kids, um, you know, the hobbies that I had, something has to give, you, yeah. you know, that's reality. So if I had to say something I'm passionate about of, you know, it's for us to continue to value being a great spouse, being a great 
parent, uh, being a great friend, becoming a better person, obviously, as we see it throughout our, our own country, but also throughout the world, you know, of trying to be a good person, try to have an understanding and open mindset where someone else may be coming from. It doesn't matter what their politics are or their religion or their race or their gender, right? Have an open mindset for what other people are going through. And, you know, what we often teach as coaches is what you work at is what you'll get better at. You want to become a better shooter, you got to work at it. Want to become a better pick and roll player, got to work at it. Want to become a better coach, got to work at it. Well, that applies in other aspects of our life. If you want to become a better person, you have to be conscious and think about it and work at it. It's not hard to tell people thank you, to show gratitude to the bus driver, to the person that opens up the door, to try to open up doors for other people, to the person that made your food and try to have understanding when someone makes a mistake, when you're at a restaurant, they mess up your food or someone cuts you off when they're driving. Maybe they made a mistake, which we all do, right? If we teach players, the game is full of mistakes. Life is full of mistakes. And how we handle people after they have made a mistake is incredibly important, right? And being open to try to see things through their point of view and try to feel what they feel, which depending on the situation, we may, we may not be able to, but trying to, I think, is what all people are looking for. And then if you want to be a great father and husband, it's like being a great person. You have to work at it. You have to invest at it. And, you know, I think those three aspects of life of trying to become a better person and trying to become a better parent and spouse, you know, are, are underworked on, they're undervalued. And I think it's something that all of us can try to do to try to make our world a better place. Thank you, Coach, for sharing that. Um, so our last segment, we call it Quick Hitters. It's just a way for us to finish um, in, in a fun way with, with our guests. Um, so we will just go through each of them. And, and, and now that I know he, he likes food, I'm glad we kind of entered a couple of those in there. So, um, all right. So the first one is the best gym overseas that your teams got to play in. I would probably have to say Hapol Jerusalem, uh, because oftentimes overseas gyms are not new constructions. And, um, you know, for us, that was, uh, the Pius Arena is a new construction. It's an NBA-style arena that it only sits maybe 13,000. And then, uh, you know, but it's an NBA-style arena, and the fans rock it. You know, Jerusalem has some of the best fans in the world. All right, next one is uh, favorite food you ate overseas. Overseas pizza. food or? Pizza. Pizza in Italy. There you go. There you go. Simple there. Um, so we saw that you grew up in, in Clearwater, Florida. So obviously a lot of people vacation there. So for you, what's your favorite part of growing up in, in Clearwater? You know, growing up in Clearwater, I didn't realize how great it was until I went and, uh, coached in other places in the United States and other places of the world. Uh, so weather, you know, they, but you don't realize it, you know, you just don't, you take it for advantage when you're, when you grow up with it and it's around you and you have no idea how fortunate you are. Uh, I always find this one interesting. Like other than basketball, what's your favorite sport? And if you had to choose one, which one would you coach? Ooh, don't have another favorite sport. Really? Uh, okay. No, I don't watch any other sports outside of basketball. Awesome. Uh, anytime I'm watching another sport, I should be watching basketball. But if I had to say <laughs> best sport, tetherball, if tetherball was a little bit from a young age, I would yeah, have been sponsored by Nike and Adidas. There you go. <laughs> 
I right. like it. Maybe the most dominant tetherball player from a youth age in the world. Oh, I like it. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, you know, I'm a big music guy. What's the music that you're listening to these days? Anything that's good. I go between rap, hip hop, pop, country, uh, gospel. I, I listen to a pretty big variety of, uh, of music. Uh, last one we got for you, and I kind of added this one after we kind of sent you, but I thought it'd be interesting based on your experiences, a basketball rule that you would change. Maybe, let's say, in the, in the United States, let's say American basketball. What would, what would be a rule you might change? That's a good question. Uh, at the college level and high school level, not being able to advance the ball, you know, for timeouts. And then I would also potentially say to make the game more tactical, no live ball timeouts, you know, in, in Europe, you can't have a live ball timeout, you know, so uh, that means that your teams have got to be much more prepared for different end of game situations. Well, coach, we, again, we appreciate you joining us today. This was a lot of, of fun for us that, that there was a ton of knowledge uh, that we would definitely like to have you back on for a future episode, especially on the video side. Uh, just to talk about different aspects of the game. So thank you again for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki. For more show content and upcoming episodes, Follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. For show inquiries, you can email us at afterthetimeout at gmail.com. You can find all of our previous episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast by searching After the Timeout. We appreciate you listening. Tune in next time for more basketball content on the court, off the court, and anything in between.